From 11FS, I'm Sarah Koshansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Instagram gives us one-stop shopping, Microsoft connects partners together, and Google's new AI functionality scares me out of the room. All this on more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. I'm Sarah Koshansky and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and my co-host Ross Gallagher. How are you doing, Ross? I'm great. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Unsurprisingly, we are not alone, so let's introduce our guests. Today we have, making his Fintech Insider debut, Daniel Hegarty, CEO of Habito. How are you doing, Dan? I'm wonderful. I'm, uh, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. We're very pleased to have you. Back once again, it's Nina Mahanti from Bud. How are you doing, Nina? I'm doing fantastic. A bit warm, but good warm because it's London. Yay. All right, let's get on with the news. So all the stories you talk about today are from our 11FS and Fintech Insider community, fintechinsidernews.com. Check it out for all the latest industry news and sign up to get involved and discuss the stories with everyone on the show and our community, fintechinsidernews.com. So first story up today is from TechCrunch, submitted to Fintech Insider News by our friend Barb McLean. Um, And the story is that Instagram has quietly launched payments for commerce. So Instagram just stealthily added a native payments feature to its app for some users. If anybody knows the Facebook family, they tend to do payments features very, very slowly, quietly. You have to go and look for them to find them. Um, So they've just started doing that for Instagram users in the US and some in the UK. Um, The idea is that you can register a debit or a credit card as part of your profile. You then set up a pin and then you can just start buying things without ever leaving Instagram. Not having to leave the app for a separate website sounds brilliant. It also sounds slightly dangerous to me. Um, There's an awful lot of shopping that could happen in a one-click fashion. Nina, thoughts on this one? Right, so I saw this and got pretty excited. I think it's a fantastic move, and I think we all kind of saw it coming. I don't know, maybe it's just me, and I just follow way too many influencers. As I understood it, though, from the article, it's primarily starting it with business accounts or like accounts that represent large businesses or large retail brands or stuff like that. But my wallet's already very, very angry at me. Um, My mother's already very, very angry at me. I'd be curious to see how this is going to translate as they iterate. And we all know like influencers can make so much money off this. And there's already, I think it's called like to know it. Yeah. So I think the difference here is, isn't it, that what you're talking about is that this is the brands who are the ads who are going to be able to pay with the influencers themselves. I wonder kind of like whether that's going to be allowed to happen or not, because then we end up in YouTube territory. And well, and that's where my mind kind of went, because they've created this whole industry where they are now like spokespeople for different brands. So how is that going to play out? Because they're now conduits in like a different advertising channel. So great news that brands can just go ahead and advertise and you can just one click and buy whatever um, Massimo Duty is selling you, which is a lot. But it will be interesting to see what the uptake of it is, though, because a lot of people are rightfully worried about their security and If people don't know about Instagram, they don't know that it's part of the Facebook family or they do know it's part of the Facebook family and they're a bit worried about their credentials being safe and security. That'll be interesting to see how it goes. But uh, I know that my friends are going to love this. There's something in this, isn't there, from a sort of a UI perspective. So they don't Instagram let you include links out of the app in like descriptions of pictures. So I guess it... it, Hashtag link in bio. Right, exactly. So (laughs) it speaks to that problem. So I get it from a sort of a navigation point and being able to stay within one UI. The kind of cynic in me is like, is this just something that they're doing to try and push advertising on the site? Absolutely. But I don't necessarily think that's a problem. 
understand. <laughs> Anything that kind of breaks down the barriers between consumers and consuming tends to be quite favoured by these these kind of businesses. So I think to me, the the only real surprise is that it didn't happen sooner. Um, and I think from what I read, I think Snap have rolled out a similar feature very recently. Also, does anyone use Snap still? I think they do. I, apparently, there, apparently there are kids. There are some. There are some youth. I'm not sure that they have credit cards, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, interesting to see how that one goes. Certainly, to, to see some uh, some numbers coming out of it. Um, moving from Instagram payments to Outlook payments. Um, this is another story from TechCrunch, uh, submitted to FinTech Insider News by Jim Bruin. I'm sorry if I said that wrong. This is Microsoft Pay comes to Outlook. So basically, Outlook has now integrated with Stripe, Braintree, Sage, Wave, loads of other payments and invoicing software, basically. Um, so when a company sends you an invoice in an email, and if you're using Outlook to read it, you can pay that bill directly without needing to leave Outlook or open it. It's the same idea. It's the same in, in-app journey, if you like. The interesting thing as far as um, as far as most people can see here is that this is a business, this is aimed at business proposition rather than a consumer proposition, which given the people who use Outlook makes a lot of sense. The whole point is that Microsoft has lots of different ways of interacting with businesses that use its software, but it's not necessarily easy to connect all those elements together. So rather than going out there and building its own payments or invoicing integrations, it's, it's using it lots of other partners to do it yeah that's it so i guess microsoft isn't a bill payment service it's not a bill payment agent so it's connecting partners the partners will be the ones that will be handling the the payment but the benefit of course to microsoft is that it gets people locked down in in outlook and and, and microsoft solutions more generally right i guess it's a little terrifying just given the kind of cesspool of phishing and scamming emails that Mm, that populate our email that suddenly we're going to be submitting payment details through email like we were 10 years ago so i think yeah i think there's a few concerns that would that jump out at me that was definitely a concern I had. But actually, when I thought about it, I thought, speaking of businesses, um, the SME market is severely underserved. So I was thinking, actually, if you're just one person running a business, and you've got so many things to do and invoices that are just being left unpaid, this could be a really great thing. And I love seeing the collaboration between all of these different companies coming together to make something really seamless and useful. But still, the phishing thing, that's definitely going to be interesting. Yeah, I think it's another one that we need to wait and see um, both the user journey and also the the uptake. So moving from payments onto Google and AI, um, this is a story from Recode.net. And basically, Google's AI assistant, so so Google had a big event, um, and they played some footage of Google's AI assistant having phone conversations with people. So uh, it's quite terrifying. Um, Basically, it was demoed at Google IO event along with loads of other stuff but basically it it uses natural speech patterns to add things which like I do the word um is probably my most frequently used word anybody listens to the podcast a lot will know that um see <laughs> the I mean it's the the problem for me or the point for me is how terrifying it is and I I kind of agree with there was a, a, a quote that was or a tweet that was quite widely used when they were illustrating the story which was um we actually don't want AI to sound this natural you kind of want to know you're talking to a robot that I should give a shout out that tweet which from a guy called Travis Quarter who's a research assistant um at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation but yeah any, any, who's who's happy with natural sounding AI and who's terrified by it? I'm, I'm really happy, and I, I can also confirm that um, Sarah was terrified. I tried to to play her the audio earlier, and she just she basically ran out of the room. I was actually working, but <laughs> but but when you listen, so so when you read, like someone says, oh yeah, it uses natural speech pa- speech patterns and it puts in things like um, and you kind of go what. But when you actually listen to it, it really does make it sound much more natural, much more convincing. And this actually sounded like a normal conversation between two people, definitely the people on the other end of the 
line were convinced. What was really impressive was the AI's ability to adapt to sort of curveballs. So when they phone up to book a restaurant, for example, it's, it's only very specific use cases where it can be applied at the moment. And the they didn't have availability at that time, the way that it could actually like pivot and say, oh, right, okay, well, you know, can we come earlier? Or if we just turn up, how long would we have to wait? It's really impressive. It shows how far we've come, especially around conversational AI, and that's fantastic. But what I'm thinking about is, so all those times you have to call in for like, you know, call your bank because you have some sort of issue. So if we're all using this now, theoretically speaking, isn't everyone just going to try and use this and just be like, you deal with that annoying elevator music while I actually get on with some work? Is this not going to overload call centers? I don't is know. This... I mean, of course, where you're going to run into a problem is if you're like a first direct customer and they're using well, voice ID. And yeah, exactly. Then you're so in trouble, right? That'll be interesting to see. A lot of. Have you heard of, of the, the uncanny valley thing in robotics? So this is yeah. this notion that like the more similar a robot is in kind of aspect and, and, and how it appears to a, to a human, the more disturbing it is to humans. We want our robots to look exactly. like robots. Okay. And this definitely like massively triggers that same thing. This but this is more, it's more of a visual thing, right, rather than a, an audio oh, thing. I disagree. I think, and also I think there's a big security thing because I, you want, because, because you want to know you're talking to a robot. You want to know who's responsible for, you know, if you talk about financial advice or talking to a bank, you want to know if that's a person who's giving you that advice. You want to know if that's a robot that's giving you advice. You want to know who to hold responsible if they mess up. I mean, if they book your hair, hair appointment at the wrong time, fine. If they transfer my money to the wrong person, big problem. Right, and that's why it's only a very specific number of use cases at the moment. But I think, you know, feelings aside, this is one of the most sophisticated examples of, like, AI-powered conversations we've it's seen. It's a strong proof of concept. Yes, exactly. I think I think it's a strong proof of concept. Um, we, will, we will agree to disagree on that one. Um, swinging back to the payments trend. Um, this Lots is of a, payments today. Well, there's a lot of payments today, yeah. This is a story that was first broken by Bloomberg. But in fact, I wrote a blog on this. So if anybody wants to go and look for the blog titled I Zettle Didn't Settle, then you can, you can find it on the 11FS uh, blog. But um, basically, the story is that iZettle has announced it's going to IPO. It's this is this is really big news. I mean, if you want in-depth analysis, go to the blog. But basically, they announced on Tuesday that they're going to list on uh, Nasdaq.com. Uh, the company plans to raise about two billion Swedish krona, which actually translates to about two hundred twenty-seven million dollars. Although everything sounds better in krona, that gives it an estimated valuation of about ten billion krona, um, which is about one point one billion dollars. The plan is to uh, list sometime this year. No date is yet specified. Everybody's going to be watching this very closely. It will be the first, it'll be the biggest ever European fintech IPO. It'll be one of the first VC-backed fintechs to reach that milestone. And, you know, everyone's rolling out these comparisons to Square. Well, when Square IPO'd, it did not do great. So everybody's going to be waiting and watching. Um, I think especially those fintechs who are sitting in the wings, Adyen, Funding Circle, who are circling IPOs ever closer. Anybody have any thoughts on this one? Um, I completely agree that, you know, it, it's a sort of wait and see and, and, and wait with bated breath. And Sarah, we talked about this on the show yesterday, um, last week, the, the, the sort of exit strategy. And I think there's a lot, a lot of companies, like we said, will be watching with a lot, a lot of it. And a lot of investors as well. Right. Cool. Well, um, so moving us on swiftly, but staying in the Nordics. I like we've got some excellent links today. Um, this next story is about Klarna. Again, it's kind of payments. We're obviously having a moment. This one is from Business Insider Nordics. The title is Klarna Escalates Its War on Banks with a New Consumer App and Upcoming Payment Card. So um, the company is worth $2.5 billion. Um, it's launching a first pure consumer app. So for those who don't know Klarna, it's um, a payments functionality that allows you to pay, either spread your payments over a number of months or pay after you've received the goods, which is unusual in Europe, 
some countries in Europe, I know in some countries it's the norm, but basically that's their, that's their USP. Um, but this app is pushing a lot more functionality out to users. Um, the, the company received a full European banking license last year, um, which is why it's looking to release a payment card connected to the app. There's definitely um, a move here for PSD2 as well. So right now they're going to show you bit, you know, what you've bought, how you've paid for it when the payments are due. In the future, they probably want to show you what you've bought everywhere and how much you've spent, which going back to Nina's point is probably hugely terrifying. Nina, did you, you had some thoughts on Klarna, I believe. Yeah, so Klarna's always been a little darling of mine, and I love watching what they do. I was very lucky in my time when I was at MasterCard here in London to see the whole thing come together with ASOS, where they've had that um, Klarna ASOS payment, so you could buy up to a certain amount and then send it back and offset the cost. And um, shout out to Chris Roberts from the team at MasterCard who kind of took the helm on that one. And I just thought, wow, that's a really interesting proposition to be able to give this kind of extra layer of service to people. However, it really worries me. So I was looking at some of the mock-ups of the UI, and you can snooze payments. And it kind of – so for someone – like, I've been pretty open about the fact that, like, I have credit card debt. I'm American. We all do. Don't lie to yourselves. And – It's very worrying to see that little, I mean, it's a very cute icon. It's a little snail and it's got a zzz. So what does it snooze? Does it snooze you actually making the payments or does it snooze notifications about payments? That's what I wasn't sure about because I presume you need to pay it back and then there's some sort of like interest that's accruing, something like that. But that's kind of starts a very dangerous slippery I'm just not pay slope. my, de- my like, credit card bill this yeah, month. Yeah, like I'm just going to snooze this payment to ASOS and snooze this payment to shop, Top Shop and at some point I imagine they're going to go, "Okay, you need to pay these back or we're not <laughs> going to keep issuing the, you this credit essentially." But it's very very slick. It looks great. They also noted that they're adding a photo, which is such an easy kind of like UX thing, but a photo of the purchase. Oh, the photo of your purchase, and and I think the quote was like, "No one want, no one wants to see that you spent a thousand dollars." Although he said a thousand dollars, he's like a thousand dollars on jeans. Well. I was like, "What jeans are you buying?" Wow, okay, I need to up my game. But but I think the point he was making was that it's not you don't relate the purchase necessarily to the retailer; you relate it to the product. Well, and exactly that, and you know what we're constantly trying to do with various fintech companies here is say. You're not trying to get a mortgage. No one wakes up and goes, I want to get a mortgage today. You go, you know what? I want to settle down and I want to I want to have my own home. So I want to buy a house. And so similarly, people attach things to experiences, to, to things and objects rather than how much is that going to cost me? So I thought that was a really interesting kind of easy UI twist that they added in. Dan, thoughts on that one? Yeah, I actually, in a past life, competed with Klarna in Germany, uh, where they <laughs> viciously annihilated me, uh, and then eventually, <laughs> eventually acquired the business. Presumably you owned a business as opposed to a personal vendetta. <laughs> Although I, I took it a little personally. But, um, but no, they were, they were tremendous. And it was interesting, actually, in Germany, where invoice financing is the principal means of payment, um, how much tangibility was key. Like, like the German consumer was just not going to pay for something that they'd not touched and felt and seen. So I actually think it's, you can see the kind of behavioral learnings coming out of that market. You can see why a photo of the the good makes a whole lot of sense. So I think they're a tremendous business, and I'd you know I'd, I'd be very interested to see what what waves they make in the UK. Brilliant. Well, time for a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? 
We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. Welcome back. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email at hello at 11FS.com. Now on with the show. So our next story comes from Finextra. It's a story about, and I always get this wrong, CYBG, so Clydesdale and Yorkshire Banking Group, uh, potentially taking over Virgin Money. So the story is that they've made an offer for Virgin Money um, of $1.6 billion. So it's interesting that Virgin Money acquired the branches and many of the customers of Northern Rock following the government bailout. Clydesdale and Yorkshire Banking Group has a very checkered history of its own. It was originally two banks, then it was bought by the National Australian Banking Group, and then they sold it, and then they floated it. I think the the interesting point here, or the point that a lot of people have picked up on, is that both of these are technically challenges to the big banks, um, but both of them have very different demographics. So we, we don't know if it's going to go through. But um, uh, Dan, you had some you had some thoughts on this one. Yeah, I think it's I think it's super interesting. Given you know a lot of the challenger banks haven't done a brilliant job of challenging the main retail banks. So it's still, still <laughs> needed to spat water out for everybody who's listening. It's still a pretty you know fundamental dominance by the the big four, certainly in the mortgage market um, and nationwide. So uh, you know the city liked it. I saw that the Virgin Money shares went up by about eight percent on the news. Um, and I think look, I think it's interesting. You know, if you if you to put it in the context of the larger market, that would give them as a joint entity, they'd have about 5% of the entire mortgage market, which would make them about uh, twice the size of TSB and about a third the size of Nationwide. So it would make them a much more meaningful player than they are alone. Um, having said that, I think you know they're both both quite challenged on the product front. I don't think either of them have managed to shift any, uh, to ship anything that anybody's particularly excited about. So the question is, you know, would they in conjunction be shipping more than they would be alone? I think that's not, not clear as yet. Interesting. Yeah, there is something on this, isn't there? I think uh, broadly, I think the um, the sense is that this is the the first or one of the first of, of an expected sort of spate of mergers and acquisitions in the sort of like the challenger bank space. So CYBG believes that this combination would create the UK's leading challenger bank. I so I bet they do, <laughs> right? But maybe, you know, just make them that little bit better position to actually start challenging um, some of the big five, some I mean, of the big incumbents. They do have their own challenger banking brand as well, B, mm-hmm. um, which is a digital version. But yeah, sorry, Nina, what did well, you... Well, okay, I want to sit you know, every bank board down and ask them, what, how are you defining challenger bank? Um, I feel like everyone just wants to throw that word around nowadays. And um, I was having a really great discussion with Sam Oakley, who looks after our PR and marketing at, at Bud. And he was saying, I wish someone would actually make, uh, would delineate the difference between a challenger bank and a challenger brand. So what are we going for here? Um, and obviously, there are things that challenger banks as we know them, the Monzos, the Starlings, etc., that, you know, maybe one thing is that they've built their full stack and they don't have any legacy core systems. Maybe that's part of it, but are, is that something that they're planning to do? And Well, they've already done that. That's the B brand. So it's kind of a, an interesting juxtaposition. 
didn't we a few weeks back speak about how Virgin was also planning to invest quite a bit of money into their digitalization? Yeah, Dan and I just looked at each other. They've been trying to do that for a very long time. I don't think I'm saying anything. I think 10X, which is um, yes. Anthony Jenkins. Jenkins. Yeah. Uh, businesses is meant to be building out their their banking infrastructure yeah. as far as i as i've heard the thing the key thing to know here if you don't know is that virgin money doesn't have current accounts and hasn't had um what they were trying to build out was a current account proposition uh, a digital only current account proposition but as we've all noted it's taken them a very long time and they haven't got very far Clyde, Clyde's only Yorkshire banking group on the other hand has managed to get at least a, a, a digital banking brand if you like off the ground and running it, i think the the interesting thing to see will be if it goes through what can they do together? Like, because they have different customer groups, different geographies. And, rec- yeah, just reconciling those demographic, demographical, is that a word, differences? That'll be interesting. I think as well, to your point, there's absolutely no guarantee this is going to go through. Um, it's, a prelim- it's a preliminary offer. They haven't even made a formal offer. There's absolutely no guarantee that a formal offer will be made. The preliminary offer was um, all shares. I think it valued um, Virgin Money at like a 15% premium. Nina, to your point about your, you're exactly right. So back in February, Virgin Money announced they were going to spend almost forty million pounds to build a brand new challenger bank. So I wonder what that means. Yeah, for I mean, that. and that's, and after, that's after they've ice? spent millions for the past five years. They've been through several different suppliers trying to do this. So if they want to give that to me, I'll take it. <laughs> I want to build a bank. Yeah, uh, that's kind of what we do. I'm going to use Instagram <laughs> payments. <duh. laughs> Okay. Well, if you want to find out more about what Virgin Money does offer, you can watch our end-to-end user journeys from Virgin Money and many others like them in our competitor insights video platform, 11FS Pulse, known to many as the Netflix of fintech. To check it out, to get more info or to request a demo, um, you can also get a sneak peek of version two, which is coming soon. Um, Do go to 11fspulse.com or email hello at 11fs.com. So um, the next story uh, is again from Recode.net. It was submitted to Fintech Insider News by our friend Amika. um, And the headline is Facebook gets serious about blockchain. Um, So Facebook also had an event this week. um, All all the big tech guys did. um, And Facebook announced that it was going to launch a new team dedicated to blockchain. Um, It will be led by a gentleman called David Marcus, who used to run Facebook Messenger. Somebody else is taking his spot. He's moving over to uh, run this team, which I believe is only six or seven people to start with. Um, The statement was, I'm setting up a small group to to explore how best to leverage blockchain across Facebook, starting from scratch. Um, before we dig into this, I do want to read this quote because I think this will provide a second element of comedy here. There is a quote from the article which says, the blockchain, which serves as the technical foundation for all cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, is all the rage. Facebook's decision to pursue blockchain technology will most certainly add some validity to the crypto industry, which has been very chaotic. Now, if anybody wants to dig into that sentiment, we talked about it on Blockchain Insider this week. Um, but Dan, you had some thoughts about the, the maybe the, the management of this or who they'd chosen to lead the team. Yeah, I was, I was really struck by this. Um, so David Marcus was previously the CEO of PayPal. So like, that marks a big deal, you know, it, I think he may have been big, 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 big PayPal cheese. Um, and, you know, Messenger, Messenger is an enormous product. I mean, they've got 1.3 billion users. So I think him kind of, this is an interesting move for him to be jumping into what looks effectively like an R&D project. And, and normally some of kind of his scale and caliber wouldn't necessarily be doing that. I think it's particularly interesting, just given that Facebook is kind of the ultimate walled garden of data and the, the most centralized of all of all the big four in that regard. And it just it just kind of strikes me, given their you know recent privacy woes, that if they were thinking about kind of decentralizing and passing some control of user data directly back to the consumer down to the storage level, that would be 
an extraordinary move on that part. Now, having said that, I think hugely unlikely given <laughs> given their monetization strategy, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I think that the conclusion we came to in Blockchain Insider was that this is very much an ID play to just, you know, using blockchain to control people's identity. And as my colleague Sarah Finan said, you know, on, the, on that particular podcast, that identity, uh, uh, Facebook have tried to own our identities for quite a while now. And um, the talking about ID on the blockchain is, is such a huge area of interest. It, yeah. Um, well, isn't that what we're calling it now? Well, my mom calls it the fintech. Um, two things. Which is also all the rage, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, the, the fintech is quite the rage. Two things. The first is that um, I've just had a quick stock and he seems to have uh, accomplished a lot. Like, dang, that's a CV. Like, he oversaw PayPal's acquisition of Braintree, um, also introduced Messenger's peer-to-peer payment platform, and it's got a billion active users um, since since uh, July 2016. So like, he's obviously really good at, at moving metrics. That's awesome. And then on the point of, of blockchain, the blockchain and ID, I just love that we're seeing something where it's not about cryptocurrencies anymore because I've always personally been more interested in the applications of blockchain for things other than cryptocurrency because, I mean, yeah, it's all the rage and yay Bitcoin bros, but seeing it in different places and and applications that matter to me and my everyday life and to people who can't afford Bitcoin even at its lowest, I think that's awesome. I think just to pick back up on the, the David Marcus point as well, so... Yes, he's a big name. I think it's interesting that he's making the move now. So um, he was, I think, quite instrumental in um, separating out the Facebook Messenger app from the Facebook app. I think that happened like within his first month or something. And um, it's really interesting that he's leaving now just as they're about to sort of ramp up like their advertising strategy and everything through Facebook Messenger. So this feels like something that Facebook are taking seriously. Yeah, I mean, he is, he's, he sounds like one of those guys who's only interested whilst it's a startup and he's building it. And once it's kind of grown up, he's like, bye-bye, onto the next baby kind of thing. Um, I just did a wave there. So They did <laughs> have just... a huge restructure, though. And I think the article mentions that. So it's the biggest restructure in Facebook history. and But nobody was let, well, only very few people were let go. So it kind of definitely signals exactly, as you say, like a, a, a shift in priorities, maybe, rather than... A bit than of musical a... chairs, but should... Yeah, I don't, I don't think Facebook is in, the, um, in need of any redundancy packages right now. <laughs> um, so from Facebook to another big data house that could potentially use the security of blockchain, says producer Laura. Um, this is a story from Business Insider, which talks about how the Equifax hack was worse than we thought. So everybody by now knows about the Equifax breach. Um, it resulted um, in millions and millions of customer documents and customers being affected. Um, the latest news is that uh, there was a leak uh, on top of all of that or information that they didn't release at the time was that 56,200 driver's licenses, passports and other forms of ID were leaked. Really, this kind of harks back to what we were talking about the Australian banks last week. Basically, the company said that it didn't feel like it was legally required to um, to tell people because this information wasn't sensitive enough to warrant a new notification to customers. I mean, I'd give you the numbers, but really, I think that's not the point. Listen, I've been doing GDPR training and I'm over here like alarm bells going off. So I don't know who they're speaking to about their GDPR training. Equifax, we, we know some stuff about GDPR. Please come and speak to us. So that, I mean, Sarah, that was exactly the point that I was going to raise it's almost this nonchalance towards like you know it was the, Facebook 
Yeah, fa- well, exactly. And Facebook had the exact same reaction to the Cambridge Analytica scandal. They were like, no, we don't consider this a data breach. It's my data. <laughs> Who are you I to tell me? I consider it a data but breach. That's, I mean, that's the question, though. It's not your data right now, right, exactly. is it? So that's the interesting thing. I mean, the, the numbers were kind of like 143 million customers affected. After reviewing all the affected data, Equifax is up that number to 146.6 million. So that extra 3 million customers were like, meh. Now, I do think, though, so based on the article, and please correct me if I'm wrong, this was mostly the U.S.? Yeah, it's almost all the U.S. Yeah, this was in the U.S. And so, I mean, as an American citizen, I know that we have our own issues with privacy. And obviously, GDPR doesn't directly affect businesses in the U.S. right now. So I'm hoping that it will actually spur our wonderful legislative branch to do something and create something similar to GDPR and move things along. I I recently heard, I don't know if it's a rumor or not, but Facebook was deciding to mostly stick to GDPR where they had to and not really introduce any of those extra privacy things in the States or elsewhere around the world where it wasn't necessary. So what's interesting is they've, they've changed their terms of service now that anyone who's resident in a European country, they're going to have their data stored in data centers in Ireland and anyone outside of resident outside of Europe is still going to have their data stored um, in the US. That's what they should have been doing in the first place. <laughs> Nina, just to give you the, the scale as well. So um, most of the US, but the hack exposed the personal data of nearly half of the population of the United States. Great. Good. Good. If anyone has my social security number, can you just email me? Because you probably have my email as well at this point. <laughs> it just feels like the more the more data they have and the more personal and, and vital it is, the more nonchalant they are about having lost yeah. it. Like, it's, it's terrifying. I wish I was that chill under stress. Well, the, the point is, I think, that we kind of all have all kind of picked up on different bits here but the fact is that it was gender social security numbers pictures of id pictures of passports phone number and email addresses now individually each of those pieces of information is not very much use but if you are one of those very clever people out there who's hanging around on the dark web i'm sure you can gather all those bits of information and for me one of the scariest things is that it's photo id that's gone out there so if we think about all these new onboarding processes that rely on taking a photograph of your government id document if those are out there that's like I mean, I, I assume everybody has my email address at this point. Like, it's just an assumption I make. But a photograph of my passport? That's a very different question. But bear in mind, they sell a lot of these kind of newfangled onboarding processes. So Equifax are a huge retailer of KYC solutions. So these identity documents are probably things that have been fed into those very those very tools. So they are literally the optimal training set for, <laughs> for building stuff to cheat it. It's, it's terrifying. That's terrifying. Machine learning is our only hope. And an excellent tool for fraud. <laughs> Moving on. So the uh, the next story this afternoon is uh, from The Street. It was submitted to Fintech Insider News again by our friend Amika. The headline is that there will be, according to PayPal CEO Dan Shulman, no more credit cards in 20 years. Um, so his perspective on this is that digital platforms like PayPal and Venmo um, are becoming far more popular Um, And as they do so, traditional payment methods like credit cards are being replaced by digital alternatives. 20 years from now, there'll be no more credit cards. Really, Shulman said. Why have them when you can have a QR code or an NCR tablet? I can think of many reasons. In that time, he said, everyone will have a smartphone enabling consumers to have full connectivity at a very low price. Uh, Nina, you had some thoughts on this one. Yeah, so part of me is going, with all due respect, no shit, Sherlock. (laughs) Um... And we see it already with um, a lot of the payment rails. MasterCard recently acquired Vocalink, and so they realize that the plastic's not going to be around forever, and that's a great realization. But then at the same time, I was kind of like, hmm, 
Maybe it is worth saying because it seems to me, at least in London, every fintech startup wants to push a card onto you. Like even Klarna is now is going to attach a card right to their new app, and everyone's trying to. Oh my gosh! I just got my Transferwise card today, and it's neon green, and you've got the Monza card, and it's bright coral. I'm a bit pink. sad we don't have a card. Yeah, you should you should get a card to a track card your mortgage mortgages. or something. <laughs> yeah, really. But so picking up on this um, from a customer perspective. A, a card, a physical card, is like a key customer touch point, right? Like, I mean, it's the only time I see my bank's brand. Mm-hmm. Where, when else do I see it? Maybe when I log into the mobile app, but maybe not. And this is what Monzo got so right from like a, just a, just getting their brand out there. The the virality point is like they went, and all right, fine, TransferWise do it now, and, you know, Tide do it now. It's too late. Like, first mover advantage, Monzo got out there, and suddenly everyone was like, Oh, hang on. What's that really cool orange card that you have and you're paying for at the bar? Um, And it it pushed their customer acquisition cost to zero. Well, it's also interesting, though, because um, Sophie Winwood from Innovate Finance posted this um, Financial Times article today saying that it was a huge kind of expose on how we're moving to a cashless society. And I'm all for that. But actually, apparently the amount of cash that is being used is going up. So in the UK alone, there's 73 billion in cash circulation. And so I'm kind of like, these things don't reconcile. And I'm curious how we go. Maybe we'll go back to tellers. So what that what that ties into, so we, we did a story on this a few weeks ago on the show about how Sweden was very scared of going cashless. But the interesting thing to me, and, and this is something we, we all talk about, about a lot in this business, and, and I think anybody who works in, in financial services knows this, is that I actually don't care how I pay. I don't really want to pay. I want those jeans. And I don't really give a damn. A thousand dollar jeans. If it's via a credit card or by a direct, you know, and, and more sensibly like via a credit card or from a direct transfer from my bank, which is the way that PSD2 wants us to go or by brainwaves or, you know, whatever it is. But you know what I mean? Like, I'm thinking about payment and the money's gone. That's, you know, it's potential. And, and this is what the likes of WeChat and Alipay have got so right, because I think for so long, QR codes were a sort of solution in search of a problem, and they've figured it out now. For me, yeah, all right, I buy that we probably will start to move away from credit cards. I don't buy that we're not going to use credit cards in 20 years' time. The reason that I don't buy that is because... Until you digitize everything in my wallet, I'm probably just going to bring my wallet. If I'm going to bring my wallet, I may as well bring a payment card. And if I've got my payment card, I may as well use it. So this is the interesting thing. So just go back to the point I was making is that Nina was talking about using cash. The reason that cash is going up, a lot of people suspect, is that the thing that they want done is to hide their anonymity, to protect their data, to not have people see where the spending is. So it's it's two jobs. One is I want to pay for that thing. Two is I don't want you having my data. So that's where they're switching payment methods. To Ross's point, this is a conversation I have quite a lot with the gentleman on this show i use my phone to pay an awful lot i because my purse is big and it's the bottom of my bag so my phone is in my pocket and my phone my google pay has all my loyalty cards on it and all my payment cards so when i go into mark's expenses and i pay for something i get my points i pay on my phone goes back in my pocket and my wallet never comes out my bag my wallet only comes out my bag when i need my coffee stamps at my local coffee no, shop no i still feel active technology shame if i if i try and pay with my phone like I, i'm looking <laughs> over my shoulder who's seeing me do this like i'm still deeply uncomfortable <laughs> and also in restaurants because you have to put your card down on the bill to get them to bring the pdq so you then take your card back and pay with your phone so like there's a kind of still social signaling. Oh, I just awkwardly could, wave. <laughs> yeah. so no, I like raise my hand. Phone? Do you put your phone on, no, on the bill? I'm one of those people who um, 
abides by the, the the letter of the actual law, which is I don't let my card out of my sight. So I certainly don't hand my car o- card off to anybody at any point. And what I do, do you not, do in the states? I don't. I don't shop on my own card in the states. But, but, isn't, <laughs> but isn't that how you tell don't them you to open, bring open tabs in bars? Yeah, well, with, with other people's credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> just handed my bank details instead. No, no, but I mean, that, that the point, I think the, the, the point we're all making here is that we all agree that like credit cards are not the future. We just don't quite know what the future actually looks like. Huge long tail on these, you know, there's still checkbooks. Like the, the banks have been oh, trying God. to like kill off checkbooks for oh, years and years. And America's still, still ahead in her hands. Oh my God, <laughs> I'm still, so sorry. Still wrong. I'm so listen, sorry, I think guys. like the credit card remains like probably the most brilliant kind of innovation in unsecured credit in the last 50 years. Like the, the underlying funding mechanism is not going away. People like buying things and paying for them a lot later. Yeah. Well, and and going back to the Nordics real quick, though, in that Financial Times article, um, they did. I think it's called Swish. Is is the fintech company? It's that. That's the Inter Nordics payment system. Well, the way that it was described in the article, I've never used it. Um, is that it's just directly going bank to bank, so bank to merchant yeah. bank, and. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of that more and more. And obviously, Curl, um, Mike's been on the show before. Um, they're starting to look at that and more and more businesses here in the UK are as well. So maybe that's where we're moving to. Maybe I can do that on my phone and Sarah and I will be very happy to not have to bring our purses out or, sorry, bags out. No, I mean, actually, the English use the word purse, which is like the thing that goes in the inside States, your purse handbag. purse is like the bag bag. No, okay, we'll, we'll take this off. That's a different conversation. <laughs> but also, until they digitize your driver's license and until they digitize your European health card and until they digitize your blah, 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 you're still going to need your purse. Yeah, I think my driving license is already digitized, as an aside. Are they? Um, yeah. But yes, no, I mean, uh, yeah, it is It is interesting. And, and it will be, I, I think we absolutely agree that the, the, the physicality of having a payment mechanism in your hand that also doesn't run out of battery or doesn't occasionally get left plugged into the wall is, is, is going to be, um, it's going to take a while before that's replaced. One last thing, I think... There's just something to be said about having a fancy card, isn't there? Like, oh, is there? Well, okay, listen. You can't get a gold QR code. Do you, like, did anyone... Golden ticket, though. Did anyone ever watch Pretty Woman and she's like, put it on the plastic? And it's just like that whole thing. And I've got a Chase Sapphire card and there's this whole psychological thing where it's act- it's got metal in it, so it's just slightly heavier. And they've done studies and it actually affects the way that you spend and that sort of thing. And so I'm kind of like, oh, I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss being like... I'll put it on the plastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, there's, we will get into like fancy cards in another week because we're going to take things a little bit more lighthearted. Um, we're going to go back to um, AI assistants. Um, and this is a story from TechCrunch where Google has added six new voices to its assistant. Um, the idea is to compete with Alexa. Um, but one of the new voices is John Legend, the American musician. There's a pun here from, from producer Laura, which I have to read out, which says five ordinary people and one legend, question mark. I like how she had sorry the word sorry in brackets beside that by the way ordinary people is the name of one of his songs if you didn't know that okay <laughs> that i actually didn't know that so i really appreciate the so explanation it's actually of like, it's very yeah, funny it makes yeah. sense now or like got he's it. done a cover of it it's very it's we should have got it because the o in ordinary and the p and people are, are both capitalized Wait, is it i feel like i should check now <laughs> so okay so um i i found out about this story right on twitter because John Legend's wife, is it Chrissy Teigen? Chrissy Teigen. She's, right. she's amazing. She, she tweeted a link to this story. <laughs> oh, about the wife. And said, I don't even need human John anymore. 
I mean, yeah. I mean, there there is something to be said for it because people have a preference to listening to a certain voice, don't they? So there are certain voices which really annoy you. I'm sure mine annoys annoys many people. But um, uh, you know, this is not a new idea. If you go back to the sat navs, you've been able to program them with a voice you like for a while. And in fact, it even goes back further to like re- the reading of audiobooks. People really like listening to Stephen Fry read things because it's a very soothing. So I think there is there's actually a there's actually a proper marketing tool behind this, if you like, as well. But it just goes back to the conversational AI um, conversation we were having before about how it's getting a little bit too real now. And at what point is it like, oh, this is really creepy. You're in my room and you're chuckling. Oh, sorry, that was Alexa. But still, I don't want John Legend chuckling in the middle of the night in my room with my Google Home. But do, you, do you really suspect John Legend is talking to you from the Alexa? In you, your- <laughs> hey, you never, you never know. But what, was, what was he chuckling at? We shouldn't at? shatter people's fantasies. We well, shouldn't shatter Quick request, though. Quick request. If anyone from Google is listening, can you get David Attenborough, please? Because I love him to narrate my life yeah they're taking requests now <laughs> so on that note that wraps up this week's new show thank you so much to our guests uh, where can people find out more about you nina on twitter at nina mohanty or at this underscore is underscore but <laughs> dan how about you uh, on twitter at dh underscore habito um, and if you're looking for a mortgage at habito.com brilliant ross um, do shoot me an email, Rosker at 11fs.com or rossgallagher07 on the Twitter, which is all the rage. <laughs> um, and as for me, I'm at Sarah Kashansky on Twitter. As always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.